Now, as we turn our attention here uh, once again to this portion of Scripture, it really is a tremendous portion of Scripture, uh, we need to be reminded that the issue at hand really is the Lord teaching his followers uh, the nature of true saving faith. What is it that marks a true follower of Christ? How do you distinguish someone who is genuine from someone who is a false follower, a genuine Christian from a false Christian? Because there are a lot of people out there who claim the name of Christ. They they claim that they believe in Jesus or they have some kind of personal uh, relationship with Jesus. But Jesus warns repeatedly there are many uh, who make the claim that they believe, but their faith is not genuine. We, in our time together, we've gone back and looked, or at least I've read it out of Matthew 7, for example, where Jesus warns on the day of judgment, Matthew 7, verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower, uh, sower, S-O-W-E-R, uh, uh, Jesus warned that there are some people who hear the word of God, but they don't understand it because the evil one comes and he snatches it away immediately. But there are some people who hear the word and immediately they receive it with joy. They begin to look like they have real life. But verse 21 of Matthew 13 says, yet they have no firm root in themselves. It's only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And then there are those in verse 22 of that chapter, Matthew 13, who hear the word, but the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So again, there are those who look like they have life, but in reality they never produce any fruit, therefore they are false followers. Again, in that same chapter, Matthew 13, uh, a kingdom parable, uh, there's the, a warning by Christ. Uh, it's called the parable of the wheat and the tares, T-A-R-E-S. Matthew 13, verse 24, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who has sowed good seed in his field. While they were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away, but when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, the tares became evident also. Now, obviously, we understand wheat, at least to some extent, right? Wheat is good for food. It's profitable. It's a source of nutrition, a source of food. But a tear, again, T-A-R-E, sometimes it was called a darnel, uh, was a grass-like plant that looked like wheat when it was very young, and it was impossible to tell them apart. The only way that you could uh, distinguish them from each other was just to allow them to grow up until they matured, and then you could tell the difference. But by that time, the the root systems between the wheat and the tares were so intertwined that you couldn't uh, pull the tares out without also uprooting the wheat with them. But the issue with tares, or again, darnel, is they're they're noxious. Uh, They're a poisonous plant. Uh, uh, They produce poisonous seeds. Uh, much like an alcoholic uh, 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 um, um, problem. You know, you drink too much alcohol, you kind of get that kind of a buzz. And so it, it, it was, it's a noxious plant. It would harm animals. It would harm humans who ingested them. And just a very small amount would, would cause that kind of effect. It would leave a, a bitter and unpleasant taste in one's mouth. But tares were planted in the field by an enemy because they were trying to destroy the crop. But again, it was hard to tell the difference between the two when they're growing up together in the field. And the whole point of the parable of the wheat and the tares is that right alongside true Christians, there's going to be false Christians. And it's not going to be easy to tell them apart. It won't be easy to to distinguish them until judgment comes. And then the Lord will say to the reapers, chapter uh, or verse 30 of that uh, chapter, uh, Matthew uh, 13, Verse 30, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. The Lord goes on in verse 37 of that chapter and explains the parable. He said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. Uh, As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And an enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. 
The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So again, right alongside true Christians, there are going to be false Christians. And it will not be easy to tell them apart until judgment comes. In fact, I told you that all through the book of John, there have been repeated examples of this, false followers of Christ, people who on the surface uh, gave the appearance that they were following him, but people who uh, really were not, people who said they believed, but they really did not, and that's sadly the way it always has been. People who make some kind of outward profession of uh, attachment to Christ, but they, in their lives, fail to produce any genuine fruit. People who come and make an association with Christ or a claim on Christ, but they fail to count the cost of following Christ. They, they fail to take up their cross and deny themselves and to follow him. People who uh, make a claim to Christ, but they're unwilling to leave father or mother to follow him. Again, that's sadly always the way it has been. Uh, they're always false followers of Christ in, in uh, uh, the outward church. People who attach themselves superficially, but don't have true life-giving, fruit-producing union with the Savior. They are false followers. Again, in our text, verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. They gather them, they cast them into the fire, and they are burned. That's a warning. That's a warning. Now, on the other hand, there are those who are true followers of Christ, true union with Christ. Those who are genuine Christians, again, true followers, they bear spiritual fruit. Again, verse 2, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Verse 8, by this the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. And make sure you notice the progress there from verse 2 to verse 8. Every genuine believer bears fruit, then they bear more fruit, and then they bear much fruit. So there's a progression. Now, the situation that has prompted the illustration here by the Lord uh, is the defection of Judas. That happened back in chapter 13, verse 30. Judas departs from the group. He goes out and commits the most heinous crime that's ever been committed in human history. That is the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ that will lead to his execution. Now, concerning the 11 who are with him, the 11 true disciples... They have absolutely no idea that Judas was the betrayer at this moment. They have no idea that he was a false follower of Christ, that he is an apostate. Judas never gave them any reason to doubt him. Judas never uh, behaved in any fashion for them to think that he was a false follower, one who would be a defector. There was nothing in his outward demeanor that would make them suspect that he would become a willing tool of Satan and betray the Savior. He was so well hidden among genuine believers. But of course, Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas would betray him. Therefore, on this Thursday night, in the context of our story, on this Thursday night before his execution, knowing Christ, knowing that his hour to depart is at hand, he, he loves these men to the max, if you will. He loves them to the max. He loves them. He wants them to understand the truth. He wants them to be able to process on the backside of this event uh, the spiritual defection of Judas after Judas is exposed, after Christ is executed. And so what he is doing, he is warning of the danger of looking like you belong to Christ, but in reality you do not. Now, in front of Christ are now the only left, uh, ones left are the 11 true uh, disciples. And again, they've departed from the upper room. They're starting to make their way towards the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, his time, Christ's time with them is running to a rapid conclusion. He wants to speak to them the things that are most precious and dear on his heart because he's headed uh, towards his arrest and crucifixion. And again, he loves them, and he knows what's coming. He wants them to have a, a context. He wants them to understand, again, what is about to unfold. And so, again, he's going to begin this discourse with one final declaration to them of his deity and then warn them about spiritual defection as he wants them to understand what it truly means to be associated with him in a true life-giving fashion. He wants them to understand that the genuine mark of salvation is fruitfulness, spiritual fruitfulness. 
The genuine mark of salvation is spiritual fruitfulness. It is not just one's claim to Christ. But again, fruitfulness, genuine spiritual fruitfulness. Because if a person is united with Christ in genuine union with Christ, if the life of God flows from Christ into that person, then there's going to be some resemblance to the Savior. If a person is in genuine communion with Christ, there has to be evidence of life, the life of God that is flowing through that person. That's the, that's the issue. Just like in the analogy from a physical standpoint, a real vine and branch, right? Every genuine branch that is connected back to the, to the main stock receives its life-giving flow from that stock, and that life-giving flow flows out through the branches and it produces fruit because of its association with the vine. The same thing is true with one's relationship to Christ. So again, this illustration, this metaphor, this visual picture of the vine and the branch again, has this central idea of union, vital, life-giving union. A good branch is going to bear good fruit if it's in connection with a good vine. And Jesus, again, he identifies himself as that very thing, as the true vine, the perfect vine. He's saying by using that phraseology that he's the only source of true spiritual fruit. He's the only source of true spiritual fruit. It doesn't come by way of one's association with church. It doesn't come by one way of one's association w- with a religious fellowship or a religious system, as in the time uh, of uh, Christ here with these men with uh, apostate Judaism. Spiritual life, the life of God, only comes through one's union with Christ. And the only way that that can happen is a person has to, here it is, abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. Now the word abide, meno, means to remain, to be fixed, to, uh, to be in a fixed state, to endure. In the context, again, it means uh, maintaining an unbroken uh, communion with Christ. It's an important word. The Lord uses it ten times in these eleven verses. J.C. Ryle offers this. He says, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant close communion with him. To be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him, and using him as our fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion and best friend. To have his words abiding in us is to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories in mind, and to make them the guide of our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior. So this concept of abiding is tremendously important, vitally important. You want to make sure, listen, you want to make sure that you're connected to Christ. You want to make sure you're genuinely a part of him. Because to be deceived in this this, uh, area, to be deceived in this area is eternally, terrifyingly destructive. For those who are close... For those who profess to be united to Christ, but in reality are not, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, there awaits them a certain terrifying expectation of the judgment of fury of fire, which will consume the adversaries. For those who are, listen, almost Christians, for those who are almost Christians, those who are false professors, who claim they're associated with Christ, but they don't belong to him. Again, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? So you better get this one right. You better get this one correct. You better make sure that you're genuinely abiding in Christ. And the only... The only proof of that reality, of that saving relationship with the person of Jesus Christ, is spiritual fruit. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now the last time we were together, last Lord's Day, we made it down to about verse 4. 
So let me just kind of quickly review as I like to do and take us down to verse 4. And then from verse 4 down to the end of the uh, section here, verse 11, the Lord is going to give a series of promises and blessings that belong to those who truly abide in Christ. So again, verse 1. Now we've gone over this before, so I'm just going to kind of run through it pretty quickly. I am the true vine. Again, remember, it's the seventh of the I am statements. It's another a statement, another claim to deity. I am the true vine. Again, I'm the only source of spiritual life. I'm the true source of spiritual life. I'm the only source of true spiritual life that comes from God. He says, my father is the vine dresser. Again, the father's pictured as one who's faithfully working his vineyard. He's busy uh, and active out there. He's printing the fruit that bears uh, um, the, the fruit-bearing branches to make sure that they bear more fruit, and he's pruning the fruitless branches away. So again, there are only two kind of branches. Those that bear fruit and those that do not. Those that do not bear fruit, verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Again, that's judgment. It's judgment. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and it dries up and he gathers them and casts them into the fire and they are burned. These are all false professors. These are unfruitful branches like Judas and every other false follower of Christ who never was a true disciple of Christ. This is not, or this is not a picture of true Christians, quote-unquote, losing their salvation because true believers cannot lose their salvation. John 6 and 37, Christ says, All the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. True believers can't lose their salvation. Verse 2 is speaking about unbelievers, false branches. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away because every true believer, every true Christian bears spiritual fruit. So again, in a real vineyard, the vine dresser goes out and he cuts off the lifeless branches that produce no fruit. He gathers them together and he burns them because they're detrimental to the health of the vine. And again, in the Lord's analogy here, it's the father who's the vine dresser. He takes the unregenerate, the false fruitless branches he cuts them off and then they're cast into the fire and burned now i want to point out very quickly something in verse two here there's a little phrase there it says every branch here it is in me that does not bear fruit it says it again in verse six if anyone does not abide in me it is thrown away that little phrase in me in this context listen cannot have the same meaning as Paul's phrase that he uses often when he uses the phrase in Christ. Paul uses that phrase in Christ when he is talking about genuine believers, people who are in genuine union with with true believers. But in the context here, that phrase in me, Christ is talking about false believers. He's using this analogy. You know that. Just in a physical vine, there are some that produce fruit and some that don't. The ones that produce fruit are helpful and they're kept. The ones that are suckers or Judas branches, they're cut off because they're sucking life out of the out of the vine. So the Lord is talking about false believers here. Those who are outwardly attached to Christ but not genuine. Again, tares amongst the wheat, goats amongst the sheep who will be condemned to eternal punishment. Apostates who left the fellowship of believers. We looked at that last week, 1 John 2. He's talking about those who continue to sin willfully after receiving a knowledge of the truth, Hebrews 10. He's talking about those who fall away from the truth into everlasting destruction. He's talking about those who thought they were on their way to heaven, but they're actually on the broad, or the broad road that leads to eternal hell. That's who he's talking about. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Verse 2 again, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. Again, every genuine believer has some fruit. Because fruit is always the mark of genuine salvation. Every good tree bears good fruit. You will know them by their fruits. Where the life of God exists, there will be evidence. Where the life of God exists, there will be fruit. The fruit of righteousness, right? Righteous attitudes, righteous desires, uh, righteous longings, righteous affections. Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
Now, in that passage in Galatians 5.22, in that context, Paul is contrasting the deeds of the flesh to the fruit of the Spirit. The deeds of the flesh, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, right? The contrast between the fruit of the Spirit and then uh, uh, the deeds of the flesh. Now, the deeds of the flesh are done by a person in their own effort, whether they're saved or not. But the fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, is produced by God's own Spirit only. And produced by God's own Spirit only in the lives of those who genuinely belong to him through faith in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And every genuine believer manifests the life of God in himself as the fruit of the Spirit is always a mark of genuine salvation. Fruit, spiritual fruit, is evidence of the fact that God is at work in your life. If there is no fruit, then there's no genuine salvation. John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, he says, The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. What's that say? Judgment's coming. It's getting ready. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree, and every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, these warning passages, and again, there are many of them, are really an act of God's mercy. Because God wants people to know the truth. If you truly trust in Christ and his sacrifice on your behalf... For the forgiveness of your sin and new life in him, listen, there will be signs of new life in you. If you truly trust Christ and his sacrifice alone on your behalf for the forgiveness of your sin and new life in him, there will be signs of his life in you. There will be an ever-increasing hunger and thirst for righteousness. There will be an ever-increasing sense of peace and joy and love, a growing love for God, a growing love for God's people, a growing desire to be obedient to the Word of God. Every branch that bears fruit, again, verse 2, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, again, that word prune just means to cleanse from filth or impurity. Again, the vine dresser takes a knife and he cuts the branch. Again, it's not punishment, but it's in order that that branch might grow bigger, that it might produce more fruit. And I told you that last time I told you that, well, the Father, our Heavenly Father, does this in our life for our own spiritual good. He strips or cuts away those things in our life that are spiritually detrimental so that we might yield more fruit. In fact, the peaceful fruit of righteousness, as the writer of the book of Hebrews says. So pruning, or the pruning work in our life by God, is in an effort to produce more fruit. And it's an effort to make us look more like Christ, conforming us to the image of Christ. It could be a variety of things. It could be enduring various trials and difficulties, problems in our life. And it's the word of God that he uses, which is the tool, the knife, if you will, that the vine dresser uses to cut sin out of our lives to make us more useful or more fruitful. Verse 3 says, you, he's speaking to those 11 disciples, those 11 true followers of Christ that are right in front of him. He says, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. These are genuine followers, the 11 that are left. They've already repented. They've believed upon Christ for salvation. The 11 in front of them have been regenerated by the person of the Holy Spirit. How? Through the word, right? Because of the word which I have spoken to you, the word of Christ, right? The gospel. They understood the truth. Now, again, they are uh, uh, clean because of the word. And again, it's God who uses his word to prune us. Uh, to shape us, to conform us again more to the image of Christ. We might bear more fruit. Uh, We moan, we grumble, we complain about our life, our situation, our troubles. It's the word of God that comes by the hand of the loving vine dresser. And he uses that word and convicts us of our sin. He convicts us of our hostility, our anger, our wrong thinking towards him. He cuts out our questioning God. And again, it's the word that indicts us and calls us to repentance, to not trust in our circumstance, to not trust in our own situation, but to trust fully, more fully, in the person of Christ and and God the Father. Now, verse 4. Christ says to these 11, and by extension, all true followers, abide in me. Now, I told you last time, this is in the mood of command. This is not a suggestion. 
It's a command. Abide in me. And really what he's saying is don't be like Judas. Stay. Remain. Don't leave. Don't let go. Don't walk away from me. Don't defect. If you wanted to flip it on the other side to say it positively, he's saying continue to believe in me. Continue to be faithful. Continue to maintain an unbroken communion with me. It's exactly like he said back up in chapter 14, verse 1, when he said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. It's really in that context. It's really you already believe in God. Therefore, keep on believing in me. That's really the idea there. And that's exactly what he's saying here by this command, abide in me. Don't apostate. Don't turn away. Don't walk away like Judas did or like other false followers like Judas will do. Don't forsake me. Stay in constant, close communion with me, with Christ. Now, what I want you to see as we move our way forward from, that's where we left last time, as we move our way forward to the end of the verse 11, it's a tremendous portion of Scripture. And I think you're going to be really encouraged by the wonderful truths that are here because the Lord's going to lay out the benefits of obedience to abiding. He's going to lay out the benefits of abiding in him. Again, verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And the first benefit here of abiding in Christ is salvation it's salvation it's eternal life john three sixteen. for god so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have present tense eternal or everlasting life eternal life is not something we get in the future eternal life is something we presently possess if you have believed upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it's the life of the eternal God and the life of the eternal Christ who's now in us. That's why Christ said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Abide in me, look what it says, abide in me and I in you. So again, what does it really mean to be a genuine Christian? What does it mean to to believe in Christ? And again, it's much more than just, quote-unquote, believing, uh, because as I mentioned often, the devil believes, James 2.19. What does it mean, really mean, to be a genuine Christian? It means, listen, to have eternal life. That's what it means. Again, that life that comes from the eternal one, the person of Jesus Christ himself. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So a genuine Christian means to be a possessor of eternal life. And it means, therefore, to be indwelled by the person of Christ. Look back up at chapter 14, verse 16. Talking about Christ in you, or the union you have with Christ, excuse me, as a believer. Chapter 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper. Here it is, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, but it does not, because it does not uh, behold him or know him, but you know him. Here's why. Because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. After a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me because I live. You shall also live. Verse 20. In that day, you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our abode with him. Listen, what is a Christian? Christian, a genuine believer, is someone who is a a present possessor of eternal life. He's not just someone who believes certain uh, information about Jesus, but a genuine believer is someone who presently possesses 
eternal life because, listen, he is indwelt by the eternal Christ. A, a genuine believer is someone who presently possesses eternal life because he's indwelt by the eternal Christ. He's indwelt by the Godhead. He's indwelt by the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Another helper that he may, I'm going to give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That's the spirit of truth. You know him because he abides with you. He will be with, he will be in you. In that day, you will know that I'm in my father, you and me, and I in you, and we will come to you and make our abode with you. That's a pretty remarkable statement. Write this reference down. We won't take a time to turn there, but here's a couple of them that would be an encouragement to your heart. First John 4, 12. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, listen, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. First John 4, verse 13, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Verse 15, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have come to know and have believed in the love which God has for us. <clears throat> God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. It's tremendous. First John four, twelve through uh, 16. First John five eleven. God has given us eternal life. This is eternal life in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. These things I've written to you to believe in the name of the, uh, the to believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have present possession eternal life. So, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be a new creation. It means that now you become a partaker of the divine nature. It means that now you're a present possessor of the very life of God, because the eternal God is in you, dwelling with you. That means you'll never die. You have currently, presently, eternal life because of your union with Christ, which, listen, makes the day of your spiritual birth much more important than the day of your physical birth, and the day of your physical death is only going to be the full expression of eternal life that already dwells within you. Isn't that good? The day of your physical death is only going to be the full expression of that eternal life that already dwells within you. So the first benefit of abiding in Christ is eternal life, it's salvation. Secondly, the second benefit is fruitfulness. The second benefit of abiding in Christ is fruitfulness. Or you could say it like this, righteousness produced in you. Fruitfulness or righteousness produced in you, it really is the process of sanctification. Again, verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now, again, the Bible has a lot to say about fruit. It's mentioned some 106 times in the Old Testament and about 70 times in the New Testament. And even in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, a believer produced good fruit, listen, only by the power of God. A believer produced good fruit only by God's power, <clears throat> not by his own effort. Uh, uh, Hosea chapter 14, verse 8, from me comes your fruit. So it's the work of God. Now, the most basic or the first fruit of this righteousness that is produced, the, the first fruit, the most basic first fruit is repentance. That's where it starts. It's repentance. Now, put a mark there and turn to uh, back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. Starting in verse 1. <clears throat> It's a great picture of repentance here. Matthew 3, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the one message. He was a man who had one sermon. He just preached it everywhere he went. Repent. He was a preacher. John the Baptist was a preacher of repentance. Therefore, he was a preacher of the greatest good news that any ear could ever hear, that God will forgive your sin. That's the message he he, he preached. God will forgive your sin. God doesn't have to do that. God doesn't have to forgive your sin, but he does, and he does solely based on his compassion, his mercy, his kindness, his grace, his free, unmerited love towards those who, frankly, do not deserve it. But forgiveness of sin is available if and only if a person repents and places their faith upon Jesus Christ, the Messiah and Savior. And that's the core of the gospel message. We are not faithful in our proclamation of the gospel unless we call sinners to repent. We don't call sinners to quote-unquote accept Jesus. Call them to repentance. The word repent, metanoeo, means in the most basic level, change one's mind. To change one's mind, but it's really more than that. To repent means to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. So true repentance is not just a change of behavior, but true repentance involves the whole person, the mind, the will, the emotion. True repentance involves a change of heart and purpose, which inevitably results in a change of behavior. True repentance means to change one's attitude, to recognize sin as involving personal guilt and defilement against God. True repentance means to change your feelings and manifest godly sorrow for sin committed against this holy God. True repentance means to change in purpose and intentionally turn away from sin and turn towards God and Christ. So again, the call to repentance is much more than just uh, asking uh, Jesus into your heart. It's much more than just making a decision for Christ. There's no change there. There's no command. Repent. There's no moral instruction in accepting Jesus. Right? The call is for repentance. Take action. And again, true repentance is a radical call to complete transformation of life. It's not a superficial message. It's a message down deep, very deep. It's a message to a complete transformation, a radical call to the core, to the very root. It's a call that goes into the innermost being of a person for complete change. Now, the preaching of repentance is not fashionable. It wasn't fashionable in John's time, and it's certainly not fashionable in our time. But Christ said he came, Luke 5.32, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 24, verse 47, and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, because God is patient towards men, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9, God desires to grant to all men repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, 2 Timothy 2.25. Again, John had one sermon, one message, repent. Look at verse 5. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all of Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan as they confessed their sin. Now, John is calling men to repentance, and men are listening. They're confessing their sin. The baptism of John, without getting into the details, but the baptism of John in this time in which he lived is not really, quote-unquote, believer's baptism as we understand it, per se. That comes later. But this baptism is John's baptism. It really is an outward expression of a need to get cleansed up internally. So when people come and submit to John's baptism, they were admitting the fact that they were people who were filthy on the inside with sin. They needed to have a radical, to-the-core, fundamental change. Verse 7. 
But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, again, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they're just religious hypocrites. They have nothing in common theologically except for their hatred of Christ. They are men who trust in their own goodness, their own righteousness. Again, they're just really religious phonies. When he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, as it says in the NAS, uh, that word for epi is better translated by the word to, T-O. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming to his baptism. And I think that's really the idea. <clears throat> and I think most of your translations, apart from the NAS, have the word to. Listen, they weren't coming to be baptized. They were coming on account of what John was doing out there in the wilderness. They were coming to see this event. They're coming out to see the spectacle. They're probably curious why all of Jerusalem and Judea is going out to see this man out there in the wilderness. Many people thought that John the Baptist was a prophet. So they're going out to see what he was doing, what's going on out there, what kind of threat might John the Baptist be to their influence over people. That's why they're going out there. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are not going out there to genuinely repent. These guys are, again, deceitful hypocrites. They're smug. They're self-righteous. They aren't interested in, quote-unquote, being converted. Their only interest is their religion, the religious system that they have that maintains power over people. John said to them, verse 7, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, again, John knew wrath was coming. He, he knew that if men didn't repent and take care of their sin, divine wrath should be expected. Men can count on it. When he asked the question here of these religious hypocrites, he, again, he knows they don't come out there, and they're not coming out there for genuine repentance. He knew their arrival was nothing more than a show, and again, an investigation to see what's going on. He knew they weren't there because they feared judgment. Because these guys never produce any true signs of repentance ever. They don't fear the judgment to come. They never confess their sin. They never saw their need of a Savior. Therefore, they never saw their need of Christ. It's because they never understood the magnitude of their sin or God's judgment upon sin and that salvation comes only through this one whom they hated. Again, these guys are nothing more than religious hypocrites. They're phonies. They're not interested whatsoever in internal change. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, verse 8, therefore bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Again, true repentance results in confession of sin. True repentance results in a recognition of God's righteousness and God's judgment upon sin. Therefore, it's going to manifest something tangible, something visible, something that can be seen in a person's life when they repent after confessing their sin and understanding judgment is on the horizon. So John says, therefore, bring fruit in keeping with repentance. And in essence, John was saying to them, okay, you guys say you follow God. You say you're committed to him. Therefore, let me see. Let me see some fruit. Show me. Show me some evidence. Show me the genuineness of your desire to eliminate sin from your life. Show me the desire to reject all human accomplishment in order to stand before God. Let me see your life and the reality that proves that you genuinely love God, that you genuinely belong to him. Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. It is both an indictment and an invitation to turn from sin. Turn from error that damns the soul eternally. This genuine sin, or this genuine repentance, recognizes personal sin. Genuine repentance recognizes God's holiness, God's judgment upon sin. Genuine repentance recognizes that judgment is just and it is indeed coming. Therefore, genuine repentance manifests itself in a changed life. Genuine repentance manifests itself in in internal, inward changes that are externally visible. Again, the Sadducees and Pharisees were nothing more than religious hypocrites. They, they were motivated by nothing. 
accept their own religious system, their own religious rituals, their own uh, religious system and the power that they had over people. They did not see their need for Christ. They never did. They never saw the need for inward change and transformation. Why would they? Because they were perfect. They already thought they were on their way to heaven. Their religion verified that. That's why John goes on in verse 9 and says, Do not suppose that you can say to yourself, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Verse 10, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. That's the second benefit, right, of, of, of abiding in Christ, fruitfulness, righteousness produced in you. And the first of all fruits of that righteousness is repentance. It's got to start there. It's got to start there. Genuine repentance always leads to the production of righteousness in a person's life that can be seen. Tangible change. Romans 7, 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Ephesians 4, 24, Put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Ephesians 5, 9, the fruit of life consists of all God, uh, goodness and righteousness and truth. Uh, Philippians 1, 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Colossians 1, 6, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world, also it con- uh, constantly is bearing fruit and increasing, even it has been doing with you also since the day you heard it and understood the grace of of uh, God in truth, verse 10, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Hebrews 12.10, our parents, uh, they disciplined us for a short time. It seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for a good that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. James 3.17, The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed of those whose, uh, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Fruitfulness. Righteousness being produced in you. Again, it's the process of sanctification. It's fruit in you that's ever increasing. It begins with repentance. It begins by turning away from your sin and trusting yourself and all your own righteousness to turning to the person of Christ, placing all your hope upon Christ and Him alone. And that transformation of life by the mercy of God walks or uh, causes you to walk in increasing holiness, increasing righteousness. Has to. Has to. Because if you're connected to the vine, the life of God, which is pure and holy, that purity and that holiness is going to manifest itself in and through you. Your life will be characterized, therefore, by personal righteousness. Again, righteous thoughts, righteous deeds, righteous words. I did not say perfection. Because although we are partakers of the divine nature, we're still incarcerated in this unredeemed human flesh. And again, not until these bodies die and we're glorified that we're going to have the perfect expression of righteousness in us. But nonetheless, eternal life is in us. Partakers of the divine uh, nature, that's who we are. Therefore, that life of Christ in us is going to be evidenced at at some level. Righteousness, righteous fruit. Again, it results in righteous works, righteous words, righteous praise. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips to give thanks to his name. That's worship, right? We come here and we, we gather together and we worship because God has transformed and changed our life and we're thankful and we love him for that. 
So that's his righteousness, the fruit of righteousness produced in our life. Again, it begins with repentance, which results in a changed life. And then righteous words, righteous attitudes, righteous thoughts, righteous praise. Also includes doing the things that the Savior did, like winning converts to him, proclaiming the gospel, winning converts to Christ, all godly work in general. That's the kind of fruit that spiritual fruit is produced. That's the kind of righteousness that is produced in in a life of a genuine believer who are truly in union with Christ, truly abiding in him. Again, the Holy Spirit never fails to produce some fruit in a believer's life. But the Lord's desire is what kind of fruit? Much. Verse 8 again, by this the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. All right, now go back to John. John 15. What are the benefits of abiding in Christ? What are the benefits of staying, being in union with him, not fleeing, not apostating? Number one, it's eternal life, right? Salvation. <clears throat> number two, number two, it's fruitfulness. Again, righteousness produced in you. The process of sanctification begins with repentance. Number three, answered prayer. Answered prayer. You see it right there. It's as clear as it can be. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's a pretty incredible promise, right? If you're in permanent union with Christ... If his life is in you and through you, if you are a true branch, if I, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Now, again, that's not carte blanche for every whim of the flesh in the sense of whatever you ask of God, he's committed to do like he's some kind of genie in a bottle. That's not what he's saying. Two qualifiers that he puts there in that verse. If you abide in me and my word abides in you. Ask whatever you wish. Again, it's very similar to what Jesus just said back up in verse 13 of chapter 14. Where he says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So here also in 14.13, Christ is not saying that God's going to answer every request. If you just tack the the words in Jesus' name you know, on, on the end of your prayer. He's not saying that. He's not saying that you're going to get everything you want. Again, it's not some kind of technique here that you can use to manipulate God and kind of uh, um, work him up like a, de- a genie, if you will. It's not what he's saying. Again, in chapter 14, verse 13, Christ has a qualifier, a couple of them, repeats them. Whatever you ask in my name, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. The praying Christ name, Christ's name means that you're making a request that is consistent with God's will and God's purposes. It means that you acknowledge your spiritual poverty, your lack of, of, of self-sufficiency. Uh, you understand your personal unworthiness to receive anything from God based on your own merit. So to pray in Christ's name means that you acknowledge Christ and his rule. He's sovereign. You, you acknowledge his lordship. Therefore, you're praying for those things that are consistent with his saving purposes, with a sincere desire that God would be glorified. And that's exactly what Jesus says when he gives the reason why he'll answer his followers' prayers, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And these are the truths that kind of flow into verse 7 here. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. Ask whatever you wish according to my sovereign saving purposes. Ask whatever you wish, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Again, the promise is, is uh, again, only for those who abide in Christ, and only for those who Christ's words abide in them. It's the qualifier. There are a lot of people out there that pray. A lot of people who pray to a variety of different deities, a variety of different backgrounds, different faiths. Just think about the National Day of Prayer, whatever in the world that is. Who are we praying to? Roman Catholics are praying to somebody. 
different than the Jehovah's Witnesses are praying to, different than the Mormons are praying to. The promises are only for those who abide in Christ and whose Christ's words abide in them. God answers the prayer of the righteous man. He only answers the prayer, is only committed to answer the prayer if you're genuinely connected to him. And again, if the true life of God flows through you through Christ, your desires are going to be his desires. The things he loves, you're going to love. Therefore, your prayers are always going to be some kind of a fashion of for his glory, for the glory of his kingdom, for the exaltation of his son. Again, those indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8 says, the Spirit prays according to the will of God. So it's the Holy Spirit who dwells within us who directs our prayers, our hearts, our, our motivations, our minds, our desires, our affections. Again, always towards Christ and always towards God's glory. So in, again, indwelt by the Trinity, in union with the Savior, empowered by the Holy Spirit, answered prayer is one of the great benefits of abiding in Christ. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. So again, what are the benefits of abiding in Christ? Again, eternal life, right? Salvation, number two, fruitfulness, righteousness produced in you, process of sanctification. Because you've repented and you've been changed from the inside out, 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, creation, right? All things pass away. Behold, all things become new, the third benefit of abiding in Christ is answered prayer, right? You have direct access into the throne room of God. Number four, the fourth benefit of abiding in Christ is assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation. Verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So if you're a genuine believer in Christ, if you're indwelt by the eternal Christ, if you're a possessor of eternal life and salvation, if righteousness is being produced in you because you've repented and you've been changed from the inside out by evidence by the fruit of righteousness, you'll not just bear fruit, you'll bear what? Much fruit. If your life is marked by the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, as one who now belongs to Christ, having crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, living by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, as again it says in Galatians 5, 22 through 24, if those things are evident in your life, listen, you're not responsible for that. You're not doing that. That's something that is being done to you by Christ because you're indwelled by him. It's exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's God's work in you. Can you know the story of Saul, Paul, right? It's radically transformed and changed when he comes in contact with the risen Christ, just like we all are. So whenever we look at our lives and we see loves in our, love in our life, we see joy, we see peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, etc. It's not what we work up. That's God's goodness in our life. That's God's grace in our life through Christ. When we look at our lives and we see a radical transformation from when we did not know Christ, from when we did not love Christ, but now we do. We look at our lives from when we did not love righteousness and, or pursue holiness, but now again we do. When we look at our lives and see our desires are Christ-like, our attitudes, our actions are for the glory of God and the glory of Christ, when we see that internal fruit of righteousness, that gives proof that we've been changed. When we bear much fruit, we show or prove, right? We give evidence of the fact that we've been changed. Therefore, we prove to be Christ's disciples. That's assurance of salvation, isn't it? When you look at your own life and re realize that you can't explain your own life, you look at your own life and you realize, now nah, I'm a believer. I'm a believer by the grace of God. I am what I am. That gives evidence of assurance that I'm genuinely united to Christ, a true branch. 
Again, that's what Peter says, 2 Peter 1.4, we've now become partakers of the divine nature. We've escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust because of that reunion with Christ, Christ in us, his eternal life in us, God in us. Uh, we've been delivered from the corruption of the world around us. Now the eternal one lives within us. And just become, we become, just because we become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world, it doesn't mean we just let go and let God, as some people say. It doesn't mean that. It means we deepen our abiding. You can look at it later this afternoon. I won't take the time to turn there, but Second Peter 1, verse 5. How do we do that? How do we deepen our abiding? Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supplying moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, and your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, verse 8. If these qualities are yours and increasing, if you're producing more of this fruit in your life, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at your life and you see your life is now different than it used to be, you look at your life and you see the change, you see the usefulness, you see the fruitfulness that proves your union with Christ. It gives you greater assurance of your salvation is because of what God has done in your life through Christ. Therefore, you just keep pursuing. You just keep pursuing that. You deepen that abiding in Christ, your love for him. If you don't, verse 9 of that passage goes on and says, For he who lacks these qualities is blind short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sin. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. As for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. It's assurance of salvation. Our lives change. We pursue the Savior even harder. I pray that's true in your life, right? You love the Lord Jesus Christ today. I pray you love him more tomorrow. You should. And you love him today more than you loved him yesterday. Somebody who's genuinely abiding in Christ, someone who's a true branch, enjoys the blessing of salvation, the blessing of sanctification, has access to God through provision of answered prayer, has the assurance of the salvation, and, number five, enjoys God's love. Enjoys God's love, verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. To be a true branch, to be a true disciple of Christ, means to be loved by him, loved by the Father. No longer an object of just wrath, but forgiven and dwelt by Christ, given eternal life. Therefore, the love of God has been poured out in your life. Well, how do you stay there? How do you keep abiding in that love? Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. How do you stay in this abiding love? How do you enjoy the love that God has poured out for you through Christ? Obey him. Keep my commandments. And if you're truly converted, truly connected to the, to the vine, truly connected to Christ, you will do that. If you're truly connected to Christ, listen, you'll look like him. And what did he do? He obeyed his father. Jesus perfectly obeyed the father, and the father poured out his divine love upon him. And the more we follow him, the more we obey him, the more we love him, the more the love of Christ, the love of God, is going to be lavished upon us. It's exactly what Jesus said back in chapter 14. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words, and the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. A true disciple, to be a true follower of Christ, a genuine branch in union with him means to be loved by him, to be loved by the Father. It means for you to love the person of Christ more and more and more, and you give evidence of that union, you give evidence of that love by obedience to the Savior. Hebrews 5.9, he became the source of salvation to those who obey him. 
not to the disobedient. So again, somebody who's genuinely abiding in Christ enjoys the blessing of salvation, the blessing of sanctification, has access to God through the provision of answered prayer, enjoys the assurance of their salvation as an object of divine love, as uh, he also is one who loves Christ himself. And lastly, number six, he possesses joy. He possesses joy. Verse 11, these things, right? Everything he said just in these last 10 verses, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Christ wants his people joyful. And true joy only comes from abiding in Christ. Making sure that you're genuinely united with him, enjoying the gift of salvation, bearing fruit, having repented, living a transformed life, knowing that God hears and answers your prayers, that you have direct access to him, knowing that you are loved by God in Christ. That's what God wants for his people. These are the benefits for those, uh, again, who truly abide in him. These are the things that produce true joy, his joy, to the fullest measure. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. The alternative? Do what Judas did. Walk away from him. Walk away from salvation, eternal salvation. Walk away from righteousness. Walk away from answered prayer. Walk away from the assurance of your salvation. Walk away from divine love. Walk away from everlasting joy. But if you go there, if you fail to abide in Christ, not only will you never know the joy of Christ, but you'll know the terror of eternal judgment. For every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown into that branch and it dries up. uh, And uh, they're gathered and cast into the fire and they're burned. So make sure you genuinely know Christ. Because there's nothing more important than your eternal salvation. And the only proof of that reality, of that saving relationship with the person of Jesus Christ, is spiritual fruit. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples.